Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Are you a friend or an enemy of the cross? You may wonder how we could say enemy of the cross. This is a church, so it'd be odd if you were here and you said you hated the cross. But what we're going to see in this text of Scripture is Paul say that there were persons in his day, most likely Christians in name, even teachers, Christian teachers, who Paul knew were enemies of the cross. They wouldn't say they were enemies of the cross, but they were enemies of the cross. And here we are today in a country where, and a part of the country, where you would think certainly there are not many enemies of the cross around here because we have crosses by the roadside and crosses on our necklaces and crosses in cemeteries. Probably your lock screen on your phone has a cross. How could we be enemies of the cross? But Paul knew that even for those who profess Christ, it's possible at the level of the heart to actually be an enemy of the cross. That's what he's going to talk about today. So how can you know if someone is an enemy of the cross, especially if they're saying they love it? Someone is an enemy of the cross if they refuse to suffer for Christ's sake. The cross is suffering. So the people Paul will talk about, they liked the cross over there. They liked it as a concept, as an idea, as a, maybe a statue or on the side of the road or at the cemetery, that's fine. Even as a necklace, that's fine. As long as it doesn't sink into your chest and become part of your heart. As long as the suffering that the cross represents, the suffering of the Christian life, the suffering that's not just a part of the Christian life but is essential to the Christian life, as long as we don't have to deal with that, then we like the cross. But if you feel that way, you're an enemy of the cross. Because friends of the cross embrace the suffering of the Christian life. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just after Peter finally gets it and says, I know who you are, Jesus. You are the Christ. Immediately afterward, at least in Luke, Jesus responds, okay, don't tell anyone, and... I'm going to suffer and die. And then right after that, you know what he says to everyone around in Luke chapter 9? He says, and, and by the way, if any of you want to come follow me, since I'm going to go die on a cross, if any of you want to come follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross every day, and follow me. You cannot walk the way of Christ if you don't have a cross on your back. It's essential to the Christian life. So what about you? Do you want to save your life? Then you can't be a Christian. But if for the sake of Christ you're willing to lose it, to die upon a cross for him every day, then you can follow him. You can be a Christian and an enemy of the cross just by refusing to suffer. In fact, in our country, maybe in our city, I don't know specific examples here, but you could probably go and definitely find churches 
that have a sort of flavor of Christianity that would not require any sort of suffering of you. There'll be churches that are already designed to cater to what you like even outside of Christ. Everything will be very nice and comfortable and good. I'm not saying have bad music in a church. We have good music in a church. But it will be designed so that you don't feel discomfort. Instead of talking about sin or hell from the front, are you having to put to death what is evil in you and love your spouse better and you're the problem? <laughs> None of that's fun to hear. Instead of that, we'll just, sometimes you'll just hear more motivational type speaking. That is an enemy of the cross of Christ. It's trying to be a Christian in a way that minimizes or even removes the necessary suffering that is a part of the Christian life. You don't have to be an enemy of the cross. You can be a friend of the cross. Friend of the cross embraces the cross. Embraces the suffering that's a necessary part of following Jesus, takes the cross, throws it on your back, and follows Jesus, who has his own cross to carry. You can be a friend of the cross by looking into yourself, seeing the sin that remains, even as a believer, and then with violence, by the Holy Spirit, putting it to death. It doesn't feel good. There's pain, but it's a purifying pain. When a husband who speaks cruelly to his wife and children comes to Christ and then fights that sin, kills it, restrains his mouth, and it's hard, that husband has the cross upon his back. He's a friend of the cross. It'd be nicer to hear that your wife is the problem. She's not. <laughs> you can be a friend of the cross if you don't run away from, but you welcome and embrace when necessary, the persecution that comes to you for being a follower of Jesus and holding to his word. And we've had so much freedom in this regard, and we praise God for it. Things are changing and will change. They always do. Will you embrace the suffering that will be a necessary part? Not of being an obnoxious Christian. If you suffer for that, what benefit is that? but for being a genuine, sincere Christian who loves others but will not compromise on the word of God or the gospel of Christ and therefore loses reputation, perhaps loses property, suffers. Are you willing at that time to maintain your hold on the truth? You can be a friend of the cross by embracing that necessary suffering and with the early disciples, count it an honor to suffer for the sake of Christ. That's how they viewed it. You can be a friend of the cross by accepting happily the delayed gratifications that are a part of the Christian life as you look forward in hope to the riches of eternity. But sometimes that will cost you the riches of this life. You can be a friend of the cross by throwing yourself into a life that is more and more pride from this world by suffering and fixed on heaven. Look, we don't like that. I don't like it either. I'm as human as you are. But if you refuse it, you're an enemy of the cross. Friends of the cross, even though it hurts, embrace this way of life. Please, be friends of the cross. <laughs> Listen, 
don't be an enemy of the cross because the cross is not an enemy to you. The cross involves suffering. There's no way around that. You can't change that. But you know what else the cross involves if you take that suffering? The removal of all of your guilt for every sin you have ever committed. A complete purity in the sight of God because of what Jesus, the righteous one, did on that cross. You can have his righteousness and the breaking of the bonds of the power of sin in your life so that it hurts to kill sin, but you can do it. You are no longer enslaved to it. The cross gives you riches in heaven that moth and rust cannot destroy and thief cannot break in and steal. A hope that lasts longer than this life. And best of all, the cross fixes the broken relationship between man and God so that you can be brought back to the Garden of Eden, so to speak. You can have a relationship with God restored through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why friends of the cross are friends of the cross. Not because we like suffering, but because the suffering's worth it. In the words of Martin Luther, the reformer, you have to learn to be not a theologian of glory who expects the Christian life to be full of gold and power, but a theologian of the cross who follows in the example of Jesus, who suffered first, experienced shame and pain first, so that afterward he could be exalted. So let's look here at Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, as he presents himself as a friend of the cross and warns us against certain teachers whom he calls enemies of the cross. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You may remember that the entirety of Philippians chapter 3 is Paul warning the Philippian Christians, and therefore you, about a group of false teachers called Judaizers. The Judaizers were typically Jewish persons who trusted in Christ, but they would follow Paul around, and when Paul would plan a church and leave, they would show up and say, what, you trusted in Jesus? Wonderful, so have we. But Paul maybe didn't tell you the whole story, because now that you've had faith in Jesus, if you want to be saved, you also have to do the works of Judaism. You have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Here's your dietary restrictions. Here's what you can and cannot do. So if you believe and do these works, you can be saved. So basically, the Judaizers took the good news of the gospel and ripped it apart and turned it into any old religion. Paul, therefore, in Philippians 3, is warning against the Judaizers It seems like right here he has these same Judaizers in mind or maybe similar false teaching. He doesn't tell us exactly who they are, but I think we can assume it's either the Judaizers or someone very much like them. And Paul, just as he's been doing in this chapter, has been setting himself forward as an example of what he wanted the Philippians to do and to think 
one who trusted in Christ alone for salvation, faith only. Paul said, if anyone could be right with God by being a good Jew, it was me, but it doesn't work that way. So I gave it up and I put my faith in Christ and that's all I need. Like Mallory said, I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's what Paul has been trying to convince the Philippians of and he's put himself forward as an example over against the Judaizers who are trying to convince them and modern Judaizers will try to convince you that faith is wonderful, but it's not enough. There are certain external things you also need to be doing to be saved. So our present text follows that same model that we've seen in Philippians 3, Paul showing himself as the good example and the Judaizers as the bad. So what we're going to have in this text is Paul setting forward himself, number one, as a friend of the cross. And then we'll turn to the Judaizers who he sets forward as enemies of the cross. So friend of the cross in Paul and his companions and enemy of the cross. So let's begin by looking at Paul and the fact that he was a friend of the cross This is what Paul was. This is what you have to be. That's exactly what he says in verse 17, actually. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, meaning Paul and his companions who trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Paul's interest here is not just the doctrine, He's been arguing about that throughout Philippians 3. But you'll see his interest here is also on a way of life. It is a lifestyle that believing the truth about the gospel will produce in you. Produced it in Paul. And so what Paul is saying to these Philippians is, listen, you remember when I was among you, those of you who were believers then, so think back to the sort of life I lived, the way I talked, the way I acted, the way I spoke, And join in, it says, join in, meaning you guys, all of you in unity together, Philippian saints, don't have some doing it and some not, all of you do this, join in imitating me. He's saying, I'm a positive example of a friend of the cross, so do this. And then, because we also need living examples, he says, look, I'm not with you right now, so even if you've never seen me, You can at least look at those who walk according to the example you have in us. So the people who have seen us and are mature, faithful Christians there in Philippi, look to them. Look at their lifestyle. Now, before we even consider what it means to be a friend of the cross, there's a principle that's given here that we should just pause and look at. The principle, this this lesson drawn from this text is that you yourself need living Christian examples. Do you see that in verse 17? I'm not making that up, right? He says, imitate me if you saw me, you know, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So listen, if you were in solitary confinement, persecuted for the sake of Christ, and it was just you by yourself, God would give you the grace to be a faithful Christian in your thought life while you're there in solitary confinement, okay? But look, you're not, are you? You're not. Probably you won't be. 
And it's not this way from the beginning. God's design for the Christian life is not a person in solitary confinement. God's design for the Christian life is for us to be here together, you see? Not just Sunday mornings, but our lives throughout the week are intermeshed with each other. And part of the reason for that is you need godly Christian examples who walk according to the example that Paul sets in Scripture. Always, Christian teaching has gone forth not just in word but in power. And for us, what this means is not only do you have a Bible to tell you how you are to live your life, but God's given you another blessing. All these Christians around you, these mature believers around you, who by the power of God's Spirit are striving to grow in maturity in adhering to this word. Just like Jesus came to the earth so that we could see in flesh and blood what God is like. Wow. So you have in flesh and blood next to you. They're not incarnate scripture, okay? This is not some wacky heresy. I'm not saying that, I promise. But you have a similar principle, which is you have living flesh and blood believers around you to be examples for how you are to live the Christian life. You have them. Look, I'm looking at them right now. I promise that they're here. Right here in this room, do you have anyone who walks according to the example that we find in Paul and his companions? Look, we've got some students. We have some students here who are not partying every weekend. You realize that? Because that's the common way to live as a student, but instead are getting in the Word, are striving to put off old habits, are trying to be faithful in a season of singleness, perhaps. They are walking by that example. And so if you're a student and you're going... How do I apply scripture in this area? Look around you. You've got other students doing it. You know that we have husbands and fathers in this room that are godly, and they fear the Lord, and they lead their families. They're in this room. You don't have an excuse. You can't say there's none around here. Look, I'm looking. They're here. So if you want to be a godly husband or father, go to the scriptures and look at those who walk according to the example that you have right here, because they're right around you. You can see it happening. We've got mothers of young children who are somehow maintaining their sanity and leading those children to obey and know the Lord and are fellowshipping with believers when they are able and are maybe going to the ladies' study and are getting in the Word. They are living, not a perfect, but a faithful godly mother of young children life or mother of older children. We have retired persons in this room who walk according to the example of the Apostle Paul and his companions who are not wasting their retirement but using it in serving other people. So if you're wondering, how do I live a godly life in retirement? Just look around. <laughs> Just, I mean, the command of the text, granted, you do have to obey the text, and it says... Keep your eyes on, okay? So you can close your eyes and not see any of that. <laughs> so you have to open your eyes, find the mature believer or maturing believer, and keep your eyes on them to learn from them. That's what Paul's saying. If you want to be a friend of the cross in any sort of realm of life, the people are around you. Look for those who are mature, who are being faithful, who have strengths that you want to have, and look on them. Now, this can be hard today because when you look at a, let's say, mature husband, father with older children, there he is, and you think, I hope someday I'm like that. 
But surely he's so busy. I mean, he's raising these kids. He's working. He's got so many responsibilities. I don't want to inconvenience him. Listen, you don't know if he can't meet with you until you ask him. I promise. You don't know that. You need those people in your life. You do not have because you do not ask. You see a mom, she looks busy. Maybe she is too busy to meet with you. But do you know that? Not yet. Reach out. Ask for wisdom. Or if they're too busy, put yourself around them. We have small groups. If you can't meet with the person you want to be like, then join their small group and you'll see them every week. Or join the ladies' study. You'll be put in a discussion group. You'll be around godly women. Or Thursday morning, come to the men's study. You'll be around some godly men. Take advantage of the opportunities. But I hope you see that in verse 17. Paul's saying, imitate me. And he wasn't there with them, just like he's not here with us. But he said, that's okay, because you can look at others who walk according to this example I've given you. So we need to be doing that. We need to be putting ourselves around faithful believers. If you don't do that, it's a little bit like if you were an apprentice painter with high aspirations and you're just getting started and you join a painting club and you show up and lo and behold, time has morphed. So there's Vincent Van Gogh with half an ear, but he's over there in the corner doing his painting thing and you see Picasso over there and you're looking at Rembrandt and he's doing his sketch in the corner and there you are, but you're too nervous to ask for any help. Please ask for help. You could become the world's greatest painter. Look at You're surrounded by people who are examples of exemplary painting. Don't be too scared to put yourself forward, which is often the struggle today, is to put ourselves forward and invade uncomfortably the lives of other people. But how else are they going to be an example? How are you going to look on them if you only see them 10 minutes in the hallway on a Sunday morning? Whatever it requires of you, Put yourself around mature and maturing believers who walk according to the example of Scripture. You've probably heard the saying of the motivational speaker who said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So those five people better be godly. (laughs) I encourage you to look upon those examples and find them. Unpause. That was a principle. Do that. Now we have to consider, okay, we want to look at friends of the cross But what are friends of the cross? Of course, our text doesn't actually use the phrase friends of the cross. It uses enemies of the cross. But we're just inferring the opposite from that, you understand? So if Paul's saying, don't be an enemy of the cross, then what are you going to be? A friend of the cross, just like Paul is. So what does it mean to be like Paul, to imitate Paul and those who imitate him, to be a friend of the cross? I think we could probably figure that out if we just keep doing opposites. So look at verse 19. This describes enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. If we were to take that and reverse all of those, you would have, for friends of the cross, what's their end? Salvation. A friend of the cross, what's their God? The Lord himself. A friend of the cross, what do they glory in? They glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. A friend of the cross, what's their mind set on? It's set on heavenly things. That first description, their end is 
in this case salvation, is a little different from the rest of them because it's pointing forward and the rest are present. But this, it's the destiny of a friend of the cross. Our future, our end, is salvation. God's not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you focus on the other three descriptions, the reverse of them, you would have a clear description of what a friend of the cross looks like now. So if you want to look upon these people and learn from their example and become this, you need to know what sort of people they are so you can find them. This is the sort of people they are. Their God is not their belly or appetite. They're not driven by merely bodily impulses for food and sex and without self-control. No, no, no. Because they've embraced the suffering of the cross, their God is the Lord himself. They glory not in shameful deeds of the body, but they glory in Christ Jesus. You see someone, is there someone in your friend group who when you talk about Jesus, they light up? I hope you have someone like that. Okay? If not, find that person. (laughs) Put them in your life. They glory in Christ Jesus. Because their minds are set on heavenly and not on earthly things. You want to know what Paul was? You want to know what a friend of the cross is? You become a friend of the cross not because you love to suffer now, but because you know that suffering now for Christ means heaven later. That's the summary. You set, we'll see it next week. Your mind is set on heavenly things. That's why you take the cross, because after the cross comes the crown. That's what you love. If your life is primarily about earthly things, you are not a friend of the cross. Friends of the cross are only friends of an instrument of torture because that cross is the only way that we get heaven and all of its bliss and all of the joys of a future life and the promise of knowing Christ closely and deeply. That's friends of the cross. Friends of the cross, they have a, not a belly that they serve, but they have a hunger for God himself. Friends of the cross embrace the way of suffering because they are waiting for the comforts and pleasures of heaven. This is why, by the way, if you think of Paul or any faithful Christian you know, their lives are characterized by suffering, but what's most surprising about them is how much it doesn't look like that when you talk to them. Have you noticed that? That when you find a really faithful Christian, almost certainly they've been through horrible suffering. But they have joy. That may have been part of your own testimony. It is for many people. How do these people have joy and peace when their lives are so hard? It's because we're friends of the cross, not for the cross's sake. But because Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take your cross, follow me, and you'll follow me to Calvary and die, and you'll follow me into heaven. It's because we have an immense joy. Christ endured the cross, says Hebrews, for the joy set before him. And friends of the cross are looking at a joy, but it's set before us. It's not here yet. It's there. But it's enough to give us joy as we look forward to it. You, Christian, have to learn to love the cross. Look, you might have a trial in your life right now. 
Crosses mainly we consider things like persecution. That's how Paul uses that. But even if you're not facing persecution, God does bring trials, other sorts of suffering into your life to grow you so that you can kill your sin. You may be facing a trial right now and everything in you is squirming and screaming. You don't want the trial. You're looking for ways out of the trial. Maybe an unpleasant relationship or a rough boss or coworker or one of your children is being rebellious. Whatever it is, everything in you hates it. You don't want to touch it. You don't even want to think about it. You don't want to talk about it to anyone. It just seems like the bad part of your life. But that's not the way that Christians think about suffering. We don't like suffering, but we embrace it. Suffering, and I don't say this lightly, and I wouldn't say this if Scripture didn't. Suffering for the Christian is a gift from God. James chapter 1. Count it all joy, brothers. When you encounter trials, that's suffering of various kinds. I don't care what kind it is. Like, well, it doesn't apply to mine. Various kinds. Because you know it produces good things in you. And it's leading us upward to Christ. Really, we naturally hold on to this world and its comforts and pleasures so tightly. We're like a little toddler, a little one or two-year-old. And they find, you know, a marble You don't even know where it came from. They find it and they grab it and they want to eat it, of course. And so there you are as the parent and you're trying to get the hand open to save the child's life. And they're screaming and gripping it so closely. So you give them a little smack and they start crying. Why would you betray them? Why would you do that to them? You're trying to save their life and you're prying those fingers open to take the danger out. That's the same way you and I are with this world. We love the world. We love it. We shouldn't, but there are parts of it that we love. The comforts and the ease and the pleasures and the beauty and the lights. It's wonderful. Okay, and we try to hold on to it and God says, here's some suffering to help you. Here's your smack on the hand. Open your hand, and we don't want to do it. And eventually, God wins. And he saves us from holding on to something that will be destroyed. And we would be destroyed with it. But he saves us from it. This is why we embrace the suffering of the cross, because that's what it is. Ouch, but it's helping us to let go of this world The world is passing away, said the Apostle John, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. So we have to not love the world or things in the world. So if you want to be a friend of the cross, you embrace it, knowing that the sufferings of this present age are preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. So you do it with joy. That was certainly Paul's example. But now we need to shift because you may be thinking, this is a lot of inferring in the text because we're just doing opposites of enemy. You're right, okay? You're right. But there is Paul in verse 17, and that is how he is, opposite of everything. But the main focus of this text is not the friends of the cross. It's the enemies of the cross. And to them we turn now in these false teachers. Look at verses 18 and 19. For, Paul says, imitate me in my lifestyle because I don't want you to be swept up in what I'm about to tell you. For, 
many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Look, I wish as much as you do that that second word just wasn't there. Many. Many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's referring to false teachers, but this applies to any who hate the cross, who hate the suffering of the Christian life. Many, not a few, and this accords with Jesus. The gate is wide, he said, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are, how we wish he said few, but he said many. So far have we fallen from God in our rebellion against him as mankind that there are few who are saved. Jesus' disciples asked him that, and it's true. The reason Paul presented himself, like I said, as an example in verse 17, imitate me, is because of the danger of how many people there are walking as enemies of the cross and who want to convince you to do the same thing. Never presented that way, but that's what they are. And they want you to settle for a kind of Christianity free of suffering. It's just not possible. Once more, if you'll let me, we need to hit pause for a second. Because again, there's a principle here before we look at enemies of the cross that's very telling in this text. I think it stands out quite a lot. For many, he says, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. If you want to know how to think about false teaching, here is a very good passage to help you. Notice there's two things Paul says about it. The first is, number one, Paul is willing to talk about and to talk against false teaching. You see that? And not just sometimes. He says, of whom, these false teachers, I have often told you. So Paul, in his teaching, was regularly talking about false teachers to warn you against them. Listen, that is not popular today. Maybe in a bygone age or another part of the country or the world that's popular, but by and large, in our context now, it is not popular for me to get up here and warn you against false teachers because in our day, who am I to tell you not to listen to other teachers of the Bible? Just seems a little self-serving, seems like a power play or something like that. Yet Paul says, when I was with you, I told you often, all the time, about these false teachers to protect you from them. Sometimes it's hard to get into your head, but it's true. There really are false teachers, you know that? And they're not labeled false teachers, okay? But they're false teachers according to the Bible. They didn't go away in the first century So even if you think of some of the most prominent or largest churches in our own country, and even then I feel like caveating it because I'm a born in this generation, I suppose, and say, I'm not trying to say it, but I am, okay? Even in some of the largest churches in our country, probably most all of them, you will not hear about sin or hell. You will hear motivational speaking. That's what you'll hear. And if you go in and you delete Jesus and God and one or two Bible verses, then a secular motivational speaker could have given the same message. 
the reason this is a problem is that where's the cross? Where'd it go? The only time suffering is talked about is when it's to say, I know you're suffering now, but trust God, he's going to get you out of that suffering. What if he doesn't? What if he doesn't until you die and are with him? The prosperity gospel today is the clearest false teaching that has a large audience. And what are the central tenets of the prosperity gospel? You don't have to suffer. Is your health suffering? Believe Jesus. Claim it. It's gone. Your finances? It's hard because you don't have much money. Claim that money. Sow your seed. Believe it. You won't suffer that way anymore. Tune in to the televangelists, watch online, and what do you find? Nice teeth, nice lights, nice makeup, everything's very nice. It's like being in a casino or something, I don't know. It's the lights, they get you, you know. And Paul says, I've told you often, watch out. That's not like, oh yeah, that's not so good, but it's fine. No, it's not fine. Paul says, I've told you often. Those are enemies of the cross. You will not find the cross there. They've refused and rejected the suffering of the Christian life. They are saving their life, and Jesus says they will lose it. Don't be taken by the external. Don't look on the outward and think, they've got it going on. I want to follow that. No. Of whom I have often told you. So if we don't preach about false teaching from this pulpit, woe is me. There is your blood on my hands. So, in keeping with Scripture, we will continue to do that. So long as Satan sews new gleaming garments to cover his ministers in, so long will we expose them. But notice in our text, and this is important, the second lesson. I told you this a lot about false teachers. I'm not afraid to talk about it. And now I tell you even with tears. Woe to the Christian who loves to call out error. There is a certain tincture of the mind, a certain unhealthiness of some minds, even within churches, that delight when someone is in error. And they won't say it, but it's there. It's the same thing that sells these celebrity gossip magazines. You realize that? Why do we love to read about and watch celebrities ruining their lives? Because it makes us feel so much better than them. (laughs) Because we're not ruining our lives that bad the way that they are. So we want to know the gossip of the, what did they do? Oh, divorced again and they did that? That's sick. That's sick. Don't do that, okay? And don't do that in the church either. There is an unhealth that's a part of the natural man that delights in finding someone teaching falsely, whether a major false or even a minor false teaching. Delights in it. Wants to point it out, hold discernment ministries that are based, not all of them, some are very good, but hold discernment ministries that just have a delight. They would never shed one tear for a false teacher, for the eternal damnation that sits ahead of the false teacher. Paul would. I tell you, even now with tears, Paul would speak so firmly about false teaching. Peter would too, to say of Simon, you Or later, to speak of someone hindering the gospel to say, you son of the devil. (laughs) I've never told anyone that. 
And yet, Paul could also say in Romans, of the Jews that hated and persecuted him and taught falsely, he could say, I myself could wish that I were cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen, if they might be saved. I tell you about this false teaching even with tears. Pointing out false teaching is a task for every Christian. It is a hobby for no Christian. Don't like it. Don't enjoy it. Do it because you must. Do you see any delight in Paul? Is he saying, whew, I love this. I love pointing out these errors. He's saying, I'm weeping as I write this, but I have to write this for your safety. So let's call out error regularly, but let's do it with compassion. Having drawn that lesson, we unpause once again. And now we need to consider who are the enemies of the cross that Paul is so concerned about. What do we learn about them here in this text? Again, probably they're the Judaizers. But here's the description that he gives, even if they're someone else. He gives five brief descriptions of these people in verses 18 and 19. The first is enemies of the cross of Christ. But then if you want to know what that means, he modifies it. The ESV starts a new sentence, but the original actually doesn't. It says, enemies of the cross of Christ, whose, comma, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We mentioned earlier that one of these is not like the other. Because one of these, the first description, their end is destruction, is pointing forward. It's not telling you about them right now. It's telling you about their destiny, while the others are telling you about them right now. But notice that first one about their future. Their end is destruction. That's what he starts with. If you don't want to be destroyed by the cross now, you will be destroyed later. That's what he's saying. Even though we have to say this with tears, with genuine compassion, we have to say it. Because surprisingly to us, the New Testament emphasizes this theme that false teachers have destruction ahead of them over and over again, and not in any uncertain terms. I'll just give you a handful of examples. Here's Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen. 15. Their false teacher's end will correspond to their deeds. Their deeds are destructive. They will be destroyed. Listen to Peter. 2 Peter 2. Here's verse 3. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It's about false teachers. Look at verse 9. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Verses 12 and 13. But these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. And verse 17, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. If you sit under preaching or Bible teaching that will never say that, then you might need to find new preaching or Bible teaching, or at least supplement it. Because this is a major thing in Scripture. They don't have to say it every week, but are willing to say there is destruction, there is future condemnation for those who reject God and especially false teachers. Look at Jude. 
Okay, that's not just Peter. Look at Jude, verse 4. Long ago, false teachers were designated for this condemnation. Verse 10. They're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Verse 11. They perished in Korah's rebellion. Verse 13. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And finally, as the climax, in verses 14 and 15, quoting Enoch from all the way back in Genesis, we read about false teachers. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, angels, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's not popular. (laughs) But it's throughout the New Testament. False teachers have their part in what Jesus himself loving Jesus, called the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, where in the words of Revelation, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Can you understand why Paul said this now with tears? Sometimes today, we like to make light of hell. We have a lot of, I don't know if you call them cuss words or fillers, that employ the word hell and use it in a light way. There's nothing light about it. And what Paul wants to point out to you first is when you look at false teachers, these enemies of the cross, these people who look like they have it all together, they've rejected suffering, and so they're living a pretty good life. God in his providence may even prevent them from all sorts of difficulties like Asaph the psalmist. You may say they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They wear nice clothes. They make quite a lot of money. Their family seems to be all in order. They're very healthy. They don't have to experience any of this suffering. They have a sort of nominal Christianity that just says, yeah, God wants what's best for me. He wants me to be happy. They avoid all kinds of suffering. They don't share the gospel because that's embarrassing and they could lose their reputation for it. They're willing to compromise on all kinds of hot button issues from human sexuality to abortion to anything. Because it's, I'm sure Jesus wouldn't be against that. And you look at their lives and where's the suffering? They've rejected it. So Paul wants you to know, when you look at those people and you go, man, am I doing everything wrong? Because my life's hard (laughs) and their life's great. Like, is this really Christianity? It's so hard. Paul says, it's only hard right now. It's going to be very hard for them later. Their end is destruction. The focus for Paul, though, as we close is not on their end. It's the next three descriptors, that their God is their belly, meaning they live by their bodily appetites. They glory in their shame because they live for their bodily appetites. They do shameful things. And this summarizes everything. Their minds are set on earthly things. You cannot be a friend of the cross and have your mind set on earthly things. You have to think about things in the world, your job, your family, etc., directions, that's fine. But if your life is mainly about earthly things, about avoiding suffering and making sure this life is as nice, pleasant, and uneventful and pleasurable as it can be, then you've rejected the cross of Christ. It's not on your back. You're an enemy of the cross. A friend of the cross says with Paul, By the cross, I'm crucified to the world, and it is crucified to me. It's dead to me. I've already died to it. So I'm here to testify as we close. 
Whatever pleasures the world can give you for which you trade the cross away, get that cross. I want comfort. I want reputation. I want pleasure. Look, these things are crumbs. They are nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that comes at the end of this very short life of carrying the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you remember in the Old Testament when Jacob labored seven years so he could marry Rachel? And what does the scripture say? They seemed to him just a few days because of the love that he had for her. And later Jacob said, there I was. By day the heat consumed me, the cold by night. My sleep fled from my eyes. But they were as a few days because I was thinking about Rachel. You don't have Rachel. You have Christ. And the sufferings of this life aren't even worth comparing. Don't even try to compare them. They're not even worth comparing to getting to know Christ fully. To see him face to face. To fully enjoy him. That's where you're headed. You're on a path of suffering, but the footprints of the Savior are just ahead of you. You're following him. That means he's at the end of it. That's the sort of life you are living. And with that great hope, you don't have to be afraid of suffering. When you read the news and you wonder, is there going to be a war? What's going to happen? And you're afraid and you're thinking out all of the possibilities. You don't have to live that way. You follow Christ, you don't like the suffering, but you embrace the suffering because it's just for a short time and afterward comes glory. Christ endured it for the joy. You endure it for the joy and you sing in this life and to the end of this life, whatever trials may come, I love that old rugged cross and I will cling to that old rugged cross and then when God gives me trophies, I will lay them down. And I will cling to it and exchange it someday for a crown. Let's pray. Lord, we love the old rugged cross. And I pray that all of us in this room would be friends of the cross, not afraid to suffer. We don't love it, but we love you. So if necessary, we have been grieved for a little while by trials, yet, having not seen Jesus, we love him. Even though we don't see him right now, we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, for we have found the treasure in the field, and we'll sell everything to buy it. We have found the one pearl of very great price, and if it costs us all the rest, we will sell all we have with joy. Because knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. And any who've tasted the pig slop of the pleasures of this world know that this is true. That to know Christ is more satisfying, more joyful, more peaceful, despite all the pain and agony of it, than anything else. Teach us, therefore, joyfully to be friends of the cross of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.